This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, featuring Ola Sergachev. Ola is a remarkable woman, both in terms of her own personal Jewish story, having grown up in the former Soviet Union, completely devoid of any Jewish identity, and finding her way over the years into that experience and ultimately to the land of Israel. And she also is a remarkable cybersecurity expert, in a sense, a double minority, being both a woman and a deeply observant person altogether, much less a woman, in the field of high-tech and particular cybersecurity, where she is a real expert. So we had a great conversation about all of those themes, including her story, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing what Olga has to say. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, any podcast app. Please share with others, rate and review wherever you're listening. Comments and sponsorships available by emailing JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Ola Sergachev. We are here with Ola Sergachev, a cybersecurity expert and perhaps unusual in that space in that she is a observant and what we call Haredi or ultra-Orthodox, although those are not my favorite terms, but Haredi woman living in Israel and really has risen to the upper echelons of cybersecurity industry there. How are you, Ola? Hi, good to see you and good to meet you, Ari. Oh, let's say Rabbi Ari. <laughs> Ari's great. Great, Baruch Hashem. Life is really good, fantastic. Even in the Corona time, which is quite challenging, quite challenging. That's right, 100%. Although I guess if you're working in the computers industry, it's probably less uh, less adaptation that you had to make uh, than most of the rest of the world. Listen, I'm a remote worker ninja, uh, doing this for the last 20 years. And I have to tell you, the last year was trying. And I'm being very gentle about it because on one hand, you do have your uh, team everywhere. My team uh, used to be in uh, five or six different locations across the world, we call it Fall of the Sun. On the other hand, I used to be on an airplane a lot. I used to go see customers, people on my team. So we had a lot of face-to-face, but not necessarily on a daily basis. So now lock me in the house, seven, eight hours Zoom every day. <laughs> I'm barely surviving in addition to my kids coming in, mommy, Hey, my Zoom is not working. My, my, can he help me with the homework? And it's like, oh my God, okay, I'm going to shoot myself soon. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the common uh, refrain of parents worldwide. <laughs> I guess now your children are home also because of, especially in Israel, where there's been all these lockdowns over and over. Uh, yes, and the quite lovely, they did have good preparation in the school system and, and they do have program and the teachers are great and amazing, but still it's very, very trying. Right. Israel's at like three or four lockdowns now. Well, that's our third one. Yeah, that's our third one. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Okay, so you weren't always in Israel, though, Ola, and you weren't always flying around the world or leading teams and, and things like that. So where did it all start for you? I guess anyone anyone listening uh, is probably picking up. If you didn't get it from the name Ola Sergachev, then uh, I think the accent will be uh, betraying your uh, Russian or FSU background. So give us a little bit about your early upbringing, where you're from. Ah, uh, sure. I was born in St. Petersburg, or shall I say Leningrad. That's, Leningrad. <laughs> I was born. It switched names all of a sudden in the middle. So not sure. And I think they switched it back. So I have no idea what my... Uh, now uh, it's back to St. Petersburg, right? It's like kind of going back to the... Yeah, and that they were called Petrograd, and then they changed it. I have no idea what the actual... Anyway, so uh, Russia, uh, I, I was... Uh, my school years is right around the perestroika time when the the, the screens fell uh, down and the walls started to be slowly dissipating or destroyed. We've had on the podcast, we've had uh, Yosef Mendelevich and Natan Sharansky have both been on the podcast. So we've spoken quite a bit about the dissidents and prisoners of Zion and oh, things like that. Wow. So I was actually on the other side of this. I'm coming from a completely assimilated family meaning I had no idea I'm Jewish. Even though I was in a super privileged school, you know, uh, with uh, all the, you know, gifted music, everything, uh, probably 80% of our staff were Jewish. I had no idea I am. <laughs> and all of a sudden around age of 16, uh, where we called it the sitting on the suitcases. Eventually they were able uh, to leave, you know, the Jews would uh, go America, Israel, Germany, everywhere they would like to go. And then we were literally seeing people leaving almost every week. And so we had this feeling sitting on the suitcases. So like, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna go? And I'm like, well, that's nothing to do with me, right? Because I'm not Jewish. And then my parents like, well, about that. <laughs> and um, you know, they brought some papers, showed me what's going on. I'm like, hmm, interesting. And then I start thinking and Sometimes, I don't know, some people get to this when they're later in the age. I was maybe a early bloomer. Around that time, I started thinking, what's the meaning of all this? Like, what am I doing here? What's this world is all about? Is this something else besides the communist uh, paradise that we all, <laughs> soon enough, we're going to be there, right? Soon enough, like just around the corner. <laughs> and um, is there anything else out there? So it kind of... And what, uh, what age would you say this was when you were starting to think 16, about it? 16, 16, 17. Wow, already as a teenager. Yeah, so I was a teenager, very curious about, you know, Kadosh Baruch Hu, very curious about what's going on. And then I'm Jewish. Oh, what, what do you do about that? Did you know, the, I mean, did you identify as Jewish if someone would ask you at age 16 or 15? Nah. Are you Jewish? What would you I say? Was, I was Russian. I was Russian. Russian. But you yeah. knew that you had a Jewish background. I did not until the age of 16. You mean your parents didn't even tell you? No. Wow. And why not? I had Russian last name. I have Russian everything. Russian Is that because your parents everything. wanted to protect you or what was their, why didn't they tell you? I think somewhere down, you know, in the, I would go back to my grandparents. They just made a decision to, they had an opportunity to switch their um, birth certificates and all the registries. So they wanted just not to have any issues whatsoever uh, with any of the Jewish, um, you know, accessory and it was not that important and it was more important to survive so as as, I, as you can imagine when I, when I go back into my roots uh, some people were killed in the uh, 
after the revolution and, and, and the civil war, some of them were, were you know, killed in the Holocaust. Uh, so there was so much. So my my grandparents that they all made it, you know, they were all in St. Petersburg. They were not born there. They came from uh, Ukraine and from uh, main Russia. Um, they just didn't feel that dragging that ancestry with them to St. Petersburg would do any good for them. You know, in your roots, like how far back you have to go to find observant Jews or, or Jews who are really- uh, Two generations, two generations. So not so far. My grand-grandfather had the, you know, the synagogue registry of all their birth certificates. And I have the picture seeing them like, you know, wearing those funny hats and, you know, funny dresses. I'm almost certain that my grand-grandfather was wearing a wig, but I'm not sure. Back then, if you also- aware that always the women cover their head depending right. on how and wigs were also expensive so um you know they're expensive now too trust me as you know and as any any husband knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> that's for sure so um and so that's kind of kind of everything aligned for me i knew that probably i'm not going to stay in russia now that i have the kind of way out the ticket to the freedom for me, it was being Jewish was actually some sort of um, transportation vehicle, you know, <laughs> get out of Russia. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, how did you? So, how did you discover that you were Jewish if you didn't know till you were sixteen? One day, your parents just said, "By the way, Ola, because guess they what? Felt, Surprise!" They felt, <laughs> yeah, they felt that they needed to um, give us an opportunity to make our own decisions. Me and my sister to make their own decisions in terms of where they're going to build their future. And as I said, being Jewish at that time in Russia, and it's really hard to explain how it looked like in the perestroika time. It was not a pleasant time, let's put it this way. So they, they felt that we have to know, so we have opportunity to use this as, as a tool to get out of Russia and maybe create better life for ourselves. And then that was basically it. There was nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing, oh, let's see where our ancestors are. Let's see what's the kind of whole heritage. My parents didn't really have any, any of that. It was that. very pragmatic or utilitarian. Business only and survival. Do you remember where you were when, when they told you? Do you remember, did you feel surprised? Like, what? No, it kind of evolved. It wasn't like one time, like, you know, let's sit down and, and talk about it. It was just kind of evolved over time okay you know people are leaving our friends are leaving everybody is leaving apparently you know 50 percent of our friends are jewish so what's about this and then like why are you not leaving but we're not jewish well kind of you are uh <laughs> you're just ignoring that <laughs> so that's how uh, did you have to prove it to the russians that you were jewish in order to leave no uh the other way around i had to prove to israelis that i'm jewish in order to get to israel <laughs> and you didn't have the documents, it sounds like, because right? uh, a whole bunch of paperwork, all the pictures of, you know, originals of the registry, because everything was pretty much burned to the uh, ground. Uh, all the archives were not existing, but there was some paperwork that we still had. So we pulled this all together, some birth certificates, some some stuff. So I, I think also back then in, in uh, Israel, they were so happy to get any young, uh, you know, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. So they were less, um, you know, meticulous about exactly how we're going to prove it, as long as you're more or less kind of around that uh, 
every kind of Jewish and looking a little bit. Look a little Jewish, yeah. Yeah, they'll let you go. Wow. So this is like what, 1988, 1987? Uh, I would say, no, I came to Israel much earlier than that. I came in 1992. So I would say uh, that was slightly before that, a few years before that. Got it. So you, so you, so you were 16 years old and you figured out that you're Jewish and you have a way out and your parents said, you know, you could go. Well, there were two conditions attached to it. And that I think was, was really deterministic for my future. One, I have to stay in uh, Russia until I finish my high school. And the second, I have to learn for one year, I have to study Hebrew. I can't go without me have basic language skills. How do you do Hebrew? I mean, there's no like, <laughs> there's no Ulpan in, uh, in Russia. So um, I had to figure out, so I had to make connections. And my father says, it's your problem. I'm not going to sign your paperwork until you show, show me. So how do I show? He trusts my word, right? He knows that I'm not going to lie to him. But you have to figure out. You have to call people. You have to figure out where to study, how to learn it. And little by little, you know, you pull one thread, another thread, another thread, and then, okay, there are people that can teach you, there, there, there are classes, there are maybe even something that you can listen in, and then Chabad showed up, or I actually showed up at Chabad, and then another thing, this is just a really Russian thing, okay, Russians love freebies, I mean, everybody loves freebies, but Russians are the whole thing about freebies, whatever you can get for free, you, you're going to take five, okay? And they offered me uh, a free, no charges, no nothing, uh, summer camp in like beautiful place, like a resort for, I think, a month. All included food, sleep, everything, and some classes in Judaism. I'm like, okay, that sounds fantastic. It's for free. So I'm going to go. And I think that really what was the last thing that completed this whole picture that started evolve later on. Because that was the first Shabbos. I actually lit the candles. And that was the connection. Like, you know, I said stars aligned. I had that little star inside me that just lit up. When you were growing up, did you buy into the whole communist and atheistic worldview or you didn't really think much about it? You know, you said you were, when you were a teenager, you were starting to discuss and debate and, you know, meditate about ideas. But until that point, had you been kind of a, a real uh, doctrinaire atheist, like many, so many, you know, communists were, or uh, was it something that you just kind of repeated and did because that was in the culture. So I will tell you two stories, okay? And I guess I'll give you a little bit of a hint. One story with there's a um, scouts, but in Russia it's called pioneers. Yeah, you kind of that's the first time really you get exposed to kind of be part of something bigger, be be like socialism. You you, you get accepted. You learn, all, you learn all the marches and all the songs. <laughs> yeah, and you kind of be part of this bigger thing, right? And you have to get accepted. Everybody get accepted, but you have this special ceremony and and you get it. This is this red uh, uh, like a tie that you kind of wearing, and you have to wear it all the time to school. So that was kind of really special day for me. And I'm coming home and I'm all excited and I'm all like beaming with like, oh my, 
like, what's going on here? I'm a pioneer. I have arrived. It's like almost like bar mitzvah. <laughs> By the way, around the same age. And my mom is looking at me like weirdly. It's like, what's the big deal? I'm like, um, well, I'm a pioneer. She's like, okay, cool. Uh, you know, here's the lunch, you know, let's, let's eat. And then I realized that maybe it's not so. So that was like a first thing. Second thing. And you had your mother been in Pioneers? Uh, everybody, yeah. Everybody in Pioneers has to. Uh, this is not, you can choose unless they, they punish you and they actually take you out of the Pioneers. And that's a really bad thing. Oh, that's a really bad thing. And only that for traders and for people that are on a, you know, blacklist of the Communist Party. So you, should, you, you don't want to be there. <laughs> so, and then uh, there were elections, right? In Russia, there were elections. So how to do the- In quotations, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have one person to choose from. Like everybody has like, you had elections for the mayor, you have elections for the local government, you have elections for the government. I don't remember how it's called back then. And I asked my mother, Ma, isn't that weird that we only have one to choose from? Isn't it usually like two or three people to choose from? And, and she looked at me weirdly again. And she's like, well, you know, it's kind of, they already selected, they know who that person is. So it's easy for us to make a choice. But I knew that she is bluffing. She know that I knew <laughs> that I am kind of getting through her bluff. And she had really nothing to say. So it gives you a little bit of a kind of picture where we kind of were making fun of our lives in a way. Yeah, and you think your mother herself was disillusioned? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they, they really bought into this old communist thing. And do you think that was pretty much the case for most people that you knew and just nobody, like the big, the big secret that nobody could actually say out loud? Or did a lot of people really, you know, buy in? Well, we belong to a very thin amount of people, I would say, thin, like, I don't know, it's a layer. It's not even, a, it's not like a middle class. It's, it's not, nothing like that. Everybody was poor in Russia. Unless you're party functionary or, or, or somebody who knows how to steal money and not to get caught. But we, we were not workers, right? And we were not the privileged ones, but we was called intelligentsia, uh, the, the, the thinkers, right? Academics like, and such. Engineers, you know, they got education. You know, we're coming from the family of architects and engineers and people that did more than, you know, uh, blue collar uh, type of work. And, and, and those layers, it's always a descent, okay? There's always, we always think out of the box. We either know of somebody who is a dissident or that's called dissident, yeah, it's Russian, or basically descent, like it's a translation of descent, or we aware of somebody, we would have a book in my bookshelf that has a cover. Inside there was a book that was printed uh, undercover, under, underground, and on the outside there was just some sort of a, you know, regular book. My father had a friend that taught uh, Hebrew and he didn't get caught, but he had to immigrate in the 70s. But his friends were involved in the, if you remember, uh, there was a whole thing about the hijacking the airplane. That's Mendelevich, yes, Josef Mendelevich, yeah. So there were a whole bunch of people there that some of them uh, really got punished severely for that. So he knew, some of these people. <laughs> so my father knew somebody who knew somebody, okay? So it was always 
very clear to us that this is the whole thing is basically animal farm, which we are not allowed to read, but everybody read in our circles. And everybody knew that this is just uh, another way to control money and power. And we just really not in a position to do anything about it, but we will always go, we, we call it go with the fist inside your pocket. So we will not uh, openly kick you in the face or so to say, or do something about it, but we will silently disagree with the party line. So, okay, so you were a teenager and you went to this Chabad camp and you had your first taste of uh, its religion. And what for you, it sounds like it was more experiential than philosophical. Um, well, let's go back for, for a few minutes. I actually tried everything. I tried a church. I tried a mosque. I did some time as the Buddhists. It was a random time. Everybody came. Oh, even the Jehovah Witnesses, but that was a complete, you know, that I didn't buy into. Uh, you know, the guys that knock on your door. Yeah, the door, sure. <laughs> so they, they did a huge stadiums of, uh, of brainwashing. That was just an amazing thing, yeah. So I tried everything and I did look for meaning. And I think the second thing that happened in that camp is that we also took the Yosef uh, and his brothers story from Tanakh, and we actually did the real learning, where we actually spent a few weeks going through the parsha, or actually a few, few of them, and reading, not really reading, but trying to understand the Rashi, and trying to say this, and why happened that, and why this happened, and what was the meaning of that. And then I understand that that's the only religion or way of life that you are not necessarily receiving everything as a given. Of course, there are certain things that are given, but then you're also allowed to ask questions and you are allowed to have your own choices and you are allowed to arrive to different conclusions and it's okay. For me, coming from the whole generation and generation of thinkers, right? My, my entire family you know, were more or less educated people. For me, it was like, whoa, well, that's a nice religion to pick if I have to pick one, <laughs> because not only I have this whole emotional connection, I also have the intellectual connection. And philosophically, it also made sense to me because it's a very logical, if you think about it, we have very logical way of living. Oh, well, you know, let's take away the, why you shake the Arba Minim in certain way and what they really symbolize. Oh, because Hashem said so. Or why you have tzitzis. Well, that's why he said so, right? Let's take away that he said so far. But in terms of how we arrive at the conclusions and why you do certain things, why there's a Shabbos rules, this, everything is logical. Think about it. So for me, it's fell right into what I'm used to. I'm reading the books. My parents had a huge library of every single book we can think, and I, I'm reading since I'm, I think, two years old. So for me, it was like, whoa, um, this is cool. This is, I don't have to believe that story of, of a Jewish kid that walked on water and you know, divided bread and wine and made miracles, uh, because I, I, I get it. This is like a story, and that's the real thing. Okay. I don't want to offend anybody. I know there's a whole bunch of friends that I have are Christians. I have nothing against that. But for me, it was just not logical. Okay. So the logic didn't work there. It sounds like it was a blend of that philosophical uh, appeal as well as the experiential, sort of the activating of your soul by lighting the candles and, and being in that environment. 
I like that word activating. This is okay. Cool. You can take it. Like, you have this uh, <laughs> gift card and then <laughs> you put the code in. That's right. Put the code in. It's right. Dial it up. So where'd you go from there? You went, you, you graduated high school. Did you go right to Israel? You studied some Hebrew. Was it straight to the Holy Land? I had a little bit of uh, academy for music. My background is um, I, I finished the school for gifted kids. I'm a pianist. I'm a classic. So you are Russian. So of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. So uh, I had to go and try it out for a little bit. And then I just kind of, it was just obvious that I'm not going to continue that path of education. This was, in Ru- this was in Russia still? You went to a conservatory? I was still in Russia. Yeah, I was still in Russia. And, uh, and it's interesting to connect to the listeners. I didn't have any uh, studies, uh, math or any studies that are not like music and arts, whatever, after the eighth grade. So meaning I had absolutely zero background on anything that has to do with my ability to study in the academy, anything that uh, is outside of the arts. Because you were in a music intensive school. Yes. There was a decision made that after eighth grade, we almost don't have any other studies, but anything related to arts, anything like music, arts, uh, and other related topics or subjects. So I realized that in Russia, I don't have the background from my, what I have in the school to even attempt to get accepted to any other studies besides music or anything related to music. So that was a no-go because I had to basically go two years back and just complete yet another round of uh, exams and studies that was just not for me. So that was obvious that if I want to do something different, I have to leave. So everything was like, I was religious already. I want to try to keep Shabbos. I want to try to keep kosher. It was almost impossible to do it in Russia. You know, there's no, back then was no kosher meat, no... So it was just not working for me. Also, I can't be anything but the musician, which was kind of cool, but it was not a really good for NASA. And I really felt strongly that my future is not in Russia, but elsewhere. And Israel was a logical conclusion because, you know, I thought everybody in Israel is religious. (laughs) You know that? That was very naive, right? So for me, it's like if you're in if you're in Israel, obviously this is this is like you have to do it. Like this is this is not the other way. So so then I basically put all my paperwork through. It took a while to get there. In the meantime, I was studying Hebrew, which was super helpful. My father actually did an amazing thing for me because coming to Israel, I was able to communicate. And then yet another miracle happened, but you know what? It's not even miracles. It's really true Hashgaha Pratit. I really see it as that because on my third day in Israel, I meet this an amazing family that are, I consider them my, my spiritual parents. And you just meet people randomly in Yerushalayim. This is just random walking in a campus, asking direction and a third sentence after the person realized that I'm in Israel for the last three days and that's the whole thing and I still communicate in Hebrew which was kind of fascinating he invited me for Shabbos and I was so naive right (laughs) foreign man I have no idea who he is okay he is in the campus but 
it may be a you know x killer or <laughs> like i don't know <laughs> it's 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 a little crazy right but we were stupid and young we're still stupid but we are older now <laughs> and i stupidly agreed so no that's that's great that's a great opportunity and from that point these people became my spiritual parents in israel because the first time i walked into their house i saw a wall full of books and some of them were secular some of them were not and then another room full of sfarim and i'm like oh i came home because that was exactly what my parents had and were they russian and no no they were actually a mixed background uh, uh, she was like a six or seven generation zafonale Rahan. unfortunately she passed away a year ago uh, she was a sixth generation in uh, israel and he was born in Switzerland. He is still alive, Baruch Hashem. He should have uh, still 120. And amazing, amazing people, amazing couple. Um, and they just, I became their adopted daughter, if you wish. And that was another step. Basically, they designed what I am today from, from the spiritual point of view, for the Hashkafa point of view, how I balance the secular and the religious parts of my life, right? Because they're both professionals, they were professionals and obviously from Jews. And they really showed me how you can do both and still be a happy person <laughs> and not to miss out in any of the parts of your life, if that makes sense, right? People sometimes feel this conflict, right? I have to work for a place and I have to make some compromises or I am very religious, but I, really would like to do some career, it's it's a conflict. Well, there's no conflict, okay? This is all can be made working out as long as we have the right guidance and we have the strong belief system that is gonna work out. So what were you doing in Israel at this time? Were you studying for a, an, um, an advanced degree in something else? Were you gonna try to play music? What, what was your goals? <laughs> I tried to do all, all, all above. <laughs> I tried to come uh, and find the academy, academic degree that's outside of music. I couldn't find anything that really made sense to me. Uh, I started to do uh, economics and business administration. In the middle, I realized yet again, yeah, see everything happens in the middle, right? I start something and then I realized that there's not going in the right direction. And um, it's certainly well in life, but also a warning here. Sometimes you do have to finish one thing because there is a meaning to that as well. And there's a lessons that we need to learn in life, how to finish them and how to say no in the middle, not to get too invested in something that is not really making sense, right? So in the middle, I realized that I like more to program in Excel than to uh, do uh, accounting and other stuff related to economics. And I switched uh, to doing actually computers degree. So. In Israel, I could do it because once I would have accepted the university, I had to do really little additions to what I had already in the background to really switch. So I didn't go to the university. I, I did a college uh, that had this program for uh, advanced students in computers, uh, computer science. And that's basically what I am today. And I continued study. I, I studied psychology. I studied a whole bunch of other topics. I think I never stopped learning till till now. I, I do always find something new to learn. 
Otherwise, it's just boring and the brain starts to shrink, you know, and then you do like this, you shake your head and you see the noise of your brain hitting the walls <laughs> of your skull. <laughs> I try not to get there. So you've been doing computers the entire time you've been in Israel? Pretty much? Pretty much, yes. But also a word of caution, I realized that computer is cool and nice and I had three job offers the second I finished my, and before even I had my final uh, exams and project. But I realized that writing code and I'll be a head of a um, development team is kind of cool. And I did it for a while. Uh, I think I really had a rocket career in five years. I became quickly from a, a real programmer, senior programmer, then a, a team lead. And then I had a relatively big team of programmers that I was actually managing. And I realized that I can do more than that. And if you look at my career from where I started as a computer programmer, and I have a strong technical background, and where I am today, vice president of corporate strategy with a cybersecurity startup, you can figure out basically that I went from so many different types of work that I did that allowed me today not only to pick the type of work I really want to do, at my advanced age, but also stay current in the, in, the, in the technology world. I think one of the things that I would like to advise anybody who decides to go down the path of technical career or anything has to do with technology, computer, cyber, you have to be current. You always, always have to look around. What's the new big thing? What's happening? Where things are going? Educate yourself constantly. And sometimes people feel that it's not you know, it's tiring, right? I learned something in the school, five years later, it's irrelevant. I have to do something new, different. Maybe adjust my knowledge, adjust my skills and uh, do something else. What I did instead of doing that, I went to do more of a technical sales, pre-sale, post-sale services, delivery, business development, marketing, and uh, also product management. So basically, because of have that strong background and enough experience in the, in the back of my head, I could go and pretty much pick any type of role. I didn't do sales just because it's too stressful for me. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a good way to design my career that I never ever lost track and connection with what's going on today and what's going to happen in a, you know, one or three years, we are not, you know, we're not naive, but we, we see where things are going. What was the state in two areas? Because you're unique as a industry leader in cybersecurity and programming in general, I think, in two ways, both as a, as a woman and as a religious woman. At the time that you were starting your career and, and as it was progressing, what was the state of both of those quote, minorities in these industries? And, and did you feel like kind of a double minority when you first started out? And I don't know if that persists till today. I imagine today it's a little bit more common, but what was that like as you were coming up and, and did it take a lot of negotiating and courage in a sense to be able to navigate all of that? I was young and stupid. <laughs> and I ignored a lot of things that were today for, you know, in the Me Too and other things and discrimination would be, and I will, I will explain what I mean by that. 
because I was double minority and I think none of the workplace I worked for, I had any women even being part of in such certain capacity of the development team. Maybe one or twice I met somebody that uh, was in that team and I, I made sure that I was hiring or just trying to hire women into the teams that I was responsible for. But when I was landing in the company, the landscape was 90, 95% men in, in the space. So that's already, I'm, a, I'm the minority. Religious, okay, the questions are very like, oh, you're gonna make babies every year or you're going And there were almost that level of questions in certain interviews. I'm kidding you not. I remember one time it was just really something that kind of stuck with my head. I was asked to actually commit, not a writing, thankfully, otherwise I would sue them today. Too bad. <laughs> get pregnant in the next three years. Unbelievable. Today you, you hear something like that, you're like, oh my God. Right? This is like the late 90s, basically? It's uh, late, beginning of 2000, late 90s. I have to tell you something. I just listened to a, a podcast about two months ago and women were speaking about them getting into, in other words, religious women, just women speaking about getting into this field. And maybe those questions are not asked directly, but it's always there. Oh, how are you going to manage? Oh, we have three children. How are you going to manage their daycare? Oh, certain things that are not supposed to be asked or even discussed in a, in, a, in a job interview are still popping up. And this is just a perception that is changing. It's slower than I would expect because in today's day and age, this should not be an issue. So think about that. A, a, a woman, a minority in also being religious. So those questions obviously, oh, well, what if we need to work on Shabbat? Well, I'm not working on Shabbat. That's okay. So figure that. So that's also it's expectation that you're always available. You're always there because the customer needs you, right? Especially your customer facing roles. And interestingly enough, when coming to the States, I moved to the States maybe three or four years down the path of my career in Israel. For a job opportunity or? personal reasons, uh, job opportunity was all, all combined. The tolerance for religious observance was much higher. It lives in the high-tech world in the States. And I'm talking about New York. I don't know uh, if it's the same across the United States because each state is definitely different. But the tolerance for my religious observance among the going was much higher than my brethren that I used to work with from Israel. And in other words- Pretty ironic since you thought coming to Israel, everyone was religious. <laughs> yeah, no, and then some people that uh, uh, came to America from Israel that were not religious, they were less tolerant for me being religious and keeping you know, Shabbat, as opposed to people that, I, uh, that are Americans, not religious, I mean, not Jewish, but they're religious, maybe Christian, and they were super respective of me not eating you know, trade for drinking cola at the company gatherings, they were much more tolerant. And I learned the lesson in tolerance basically there because when you live in Israel, it sometimes teaches you also to be less tolerant of the people that are less tolerant you are. Fascinating. I mean, you know, also I, I imagine that if you were operating within the 
sort of that elite high tech startup environment in Israel that's known to really draw. And again, as a stereotype, and maybe it's changing also, but certainly I believe this was the case that this was really drew from the sort of Ashkenazi secular elites of the country. You know, all the people coming out of the elite army units, Shimon Matayim, and all of these different places. And these are, it's a very secular ethos there. And so it wasn't, it's not really a cross section of, you know, Masarati and traditional Sephardim and, you know, Haredim and that, you know, even Datilumi so much. Maybe again, now it's probably changing, but. I imagine that that you were really, even within Israel, which itself is somewhat secular, that subculture is probably even more secular. Absolutely. I can even now, I can hardly think of any CEO of startup I know. Again, I don't have the statistics there, but I can maybe name few of them on one hand that are religious and they're either established a company or they're in a senior position within a company. And it's a super, super secular elite community. Everybody knows everybody, kind of everybody came from the same place or university or army or combination of of both. Uh, Back then, I would think it was more like where they were in the army plus where they were in the school kind of thing. But also most of the schools like Hebrew University or Tel Aviv University were the ones that produce or, or Technion, right? Produce most of the professionals in the high-tech world. I think Barlan caught up slightly later to that, but I still very rarely see um, any of the graduates um, in circles I am, you know, being right now in Israel, which is quite fascinating if you think about it. Still have about, what is this, the numbers? I think the Haredi Jews are about 12%. Of population in Israel, uh, and I, I would say the the Tilumi probably make another at least same amount, twelve or maybe a little bit more than that. And yet, uh, representation in the high tech industry from the Haredi it's about three percent, as opposed to overall population. And uh, I don't know the numbers for the you know the Tilumi folks, but I just see what's happening in in the workplaces, right? I, I see. There's very few of them um, participating in, in this particular industry. So, so what do you think nowadays is going on? Again, both from the female side of things and from the religious or the Haredi side of things. You know, it's interesting. I've read a number of articles unrelated to, to this conversation, but just from my own curiosity. And some articles describe how, you know, in the Haredi girls education system, there's been a major shift away from teaching professions uh, and, and maybe lower wage, less professionalized careers into more of the high tech because uh, various reasons, but you know, people can work remotely, they can work in all female teams, they can earn higher salaries and so forth. On the other hand, I've read other articles that talk about how really it's a bit of a, of a myth or a red herring because actually many of those positions are really kind of functional positions. They're not the higher level critical thinking positions. There's not a lot of growth going on, whether that is externally imposed limitations or self-imposed limitations. As some analysts have argued that Haredi women are not interested in promoting themselves because of, you know, they want to fit within certain time constraints and certain boxes and certain lifestyles. So do you see change happening? And is there a lot of entry and greater penetration from 
A, women and B, especially Haredi women into the broader high-tech field? Or is it really kind of a myth uh, or sort of a mirage and it's just they're doing sort of low-level functionary work but not actually penetrating into the inner circle of, the, of this uh, industry? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you know how statistics works, right? I, I always use this uh, saying that people use statistics as a drunk uses a, a light pole, not for illumination, but for support. Right. So it really depends who does the research and who pays for it and what kind of numbers they want to come up with. Okay. It's always an agenda driven, but well, that's why anecdote. That's why anecdotal uh, perceptions are also very important. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and here's I think there's a probably four different trends that I recognize, and I I don't want to limit it to women in uh, high tech or high women, but also men. So you're absolutely right. Every single Basiakov, at least in Israel offers in the eighth grade an opportunity for the girls to do uh, uh, some sort of a deep dive or double click into the technology fields, okay? Some of them programming, some of them engineering, like all different areas. And mostly for the reasons of Parnassa and able to really earn a higher salary and able to uh, be in a better place uh, because also there's not that many, how many teaching jobs you can have, right? You have seminaries <laughs> released every year, thousands of girls. There's not that many schools that they can actually find a job to teach, right? So you have to have some additional options. And because of programming is certainly uh, a field when you can limit exposure to certain things that people are not interested to be exposed. It's not customer facing. It's not, you don't have to walk around. You don't like, there's a lot of things that you can actually feel that you are in some sort of a bubble. So I think it's gets more and more popular uh, as a additional way of earning living and decent living. Okay. So that's definitely happening. I can tell you I'm involved in all sorts of consulting questions, whatever, voluntary work. And I see just the amount of people that are telling me that seminar and, and this course and this two years and that five years and this four years, whatever it is, it, it feels that there is a really more than it used to be, that's for sure. On the other hand, there are also places that offer all women or all men uh, outsourcing opportunities. So they created an environment and you can actually continue be keeping the values and still earning more than you used to. So that's definitely happening. I, I don't know percentage wise, but interesting number just a year ago that they did a survey, 70% of the workforce, Haredi workforce in the high tech is women still. So that's interesting. Uh, and then the numbers are definitely on the rise. On the other hand, if you talk only women, the amount of women approaching high degrees in the academy for computer science or any technical degrees actually down on the last decade from 30% 20 years ago to only 20%. Uh, and I think it's actually even worldwide. And comes back to the question how hard it is to manage a demanding career in general, right? That that is extra hours, deliveries, is stressful, and in a sense, to actually create a career or keep 
low profile and be uh, in certain level, right? But not going beyond that level. And I think it's a really uh, personal decision and a self-inflicted decision in a way, because I had met women, I'm like super, oh my gosh, you have to do this. You're so brilliant. You, you gotta do uh, this. And I think, can I help you? Can I mentor you? And the answer was, no, no, I'm happy where I am. I don't want, I want to do this and that's what I want to do. And this is where I want to stay. And I don't want any promotion. I don't want to do anything about it because this is, this is, this is perfect for me. So I don't know, it's hard to say really. Um, there's definitely trends and conflicting trends. I do see more Haredi men entering this field. Uh, recently, I had a, a, another seminar when a lot of people joined and question and answer kind of a session and many, many Haredi men were asking really valuable questions of how they build their careers, how they uh, progress in both and they wanna still keep learning and they wanna continue doing that and they wanna still do programming how they can do it. So there's very interesting discussions around that. Because again, it's this thing guarantees two things. Stable income, because there's always not enough technical professionals and Interestingly enough, because of uh, the way we structure our religious studies, I think people are more ready for this kind of out of the box thinking. For analytical the, skills and critical thinking. Yeah, analytical skills, critical thinking, right? Because the way we structure the Jewish studies, I, I'm really believing in that, especially in cyber security, right? That we're looking for people that know how to analyze, know how to logically arrive to conclusions, know how to see the bigger picture, know how to, combine different facts and different information and do something about it. So technology and cyber are super like fit for people who came from the religious uh, studies, the, the Jewish studies. So I think that's also contributes to their ability to succeed and be super, super successful. On the other hand, you ask yourself a question. At the end of the day, what's more important? Or maybe they're equally important and maybe at a certain time this is important and maybe a certain time that's important, right? I made certain decisions, whatever it is, personal decisions to start with career and take care of the family later, okay? It came at the personal cost, right? Not everybody is, is ready to make that call. And I still don't know whether I made the right one or wrong one, but it was the right call for me, okay? Uh, and I totally understand people that says, I'm not interested. Don't don't promote me. Don't give me any like. Just pay me the salary. <laughs> Upgrade my salary every three years. I'm a happy camper, and it's fine, right? And I think it's complicated. It touches on a lot of different trends and inflection points in Israeli society, especially with the Haredi population growing so precipitously and expected to become like forty percent of the kids under first grade now are, are Haredi, and so it, there's a reckoning that's coming. And it's going to precipitate change in the broader Israeli society. And uh, it'll be really interesting to watch how it unfolds. I'm so curious why you got into cybersecurity specifically, where it seems like that, that's where you've really made your bones, so to speak. You were, you were as programmer and you were obviously quite a, an accomplished programmer, leading teams and so forth. But it seems like the, the rocket fuel for your career really was the cybersecurity. Why did you shift into that particular space within the broader tech industry? Well, I think it happens almost by mistake. <laughs> As always, <laughs> well, there's no mistakes, right? You got, but, you got hacked and uh, got really upset. Like, 
partially that. I'm a super paranoid person in general. Just um, by the way, Ola Sergachev is not her real name. It's I'm kidding. <laughs> I used to, I used to start my presentations like I I'm I'm Russian. I speak five languages and I'm not a spy. <laughs> right? I have three At least not that, not that you'll tell us. <laughs> exactly. And if I am, I'm not going to tell you. But jokes aside, one of the startups I worked for were focusing on the database security and data security, which again, there was a beginning of all the understandings of the data really means and how to protect the data and how to manage the data and privacy and all the things. And just somehow I felt that there's, listen, technology always helps, right? Um, I remember developing things for the, um, uh, some applications in the medicine, in, um, in the military, and you know that this software either saving people's lives or making sure that their lives are protected or time, you know, depending <laughs> how we look at that, right? But then you come to the cybersecurity and you, and you understand that the protection and the meaning of what it causes to people if, if they're being insecure and they're enriched or something happens is so much more. It's almost personal, right? It's, a, it's at your doorstep. And helping in that space and helping in that area is just becoming so much more meaningful. It's now you're not just dealing with some module in this particular program that's going to be part of the bigger software package and that's going to run and manage, I don't know, uh, some information. Here you actually, it's a difference between something that works and delivers the value or something that is being compromised and you can lose anything from people losing their lives. We have happened that you know, just recently, right? Uh, a ransomware attack at the hospital costed somebody a life. They, they couldn't provide the life-saving support and, and, and it's a real story. But it's also something that even if it's not so dramatic, it still makes people either very happy or very unhappy. So I believe there's something about this uh, calling or this uh, cause that makes it more meaningful for, for me. And it's also very interesting because there's always something new going on. There's always something exciting. It's a constant like a uh, chess match, right? Back and forth. In, in a way, right. You know, you, the hackers you, and the... Yeah, and they scored there and you know, let's see how they're going to do or how we're going to do. It's like a, a little bit of a cat and a mouse game, right? Sometimes the mouse is the cat and sometimes the cat is the mouse. <laughs> it depends how we look at this. And from that point, it just was uh, logically evolved so that I, I just expand my knowledge from data security to uh, uh, identity security and identity management. And then now we are network security and data set security. So it's, and they're all connected those topics. And the more you dig and the more you gain experience, also the more valuable your experience and knowledge are. So it doesn't make sense to switch. Even though if somebody will offer today some different project in the high tech, but not necessarily like biotech, for example, is very super interesting for me, right? This whole vaccines, this whole technology behind developing those vaccines is super interesting for me. Uh, and again, I might just decide, you know, enough cybersecurity, I want to just do something else with my life. And at the end of the day, the more experience um, I have uh, and the broader 
view of how things work, helping to be able to pick from more options and more choices uh, in, in the career. So I think it's very good to have the broad and deep knowledge in certain topics to become a subject matter expert. Where do you see the whole field going? Because you read all the time of these massive areas of insecurity that all of our infrastructure basically now is, is hackable on, on some level. Talk about hospitals, water systems, you know, electric grids. Just yesterday, I read an article that Biden's had his first call with uh, with your buddy Putin, and uh, they they were you know he was basically chiding him and warning him about you know hacking and, and Russian proxy hacking, which of course Putin was denying, etc. But you know this was the what they released about, and that you know there are nefarious state actors, you know especially China and probably Russia and you know elections and all these different things, you know whether they interfered in the election or not, but that the idea is that they could, you know, and and somebody could and and not just elections, but, you know, day-to-day necessities that we're completely reliant on, you know, I don't know, airline industry, autonomous vehicles, everything, you know, could be hackable. Where is the industry going? And do you think that the security side of the industry is ahead enough of the curve or on par enough with the nefarious side of the fence? Uh, it's hard to tell for two reasons. Uh, every time we think we are ahead, something new pops up, just uh, the recent uh, solar winds bridge, and then Sonic Wall, which actually embedded in their own code, right? And then and, and their own backdoors that is almost unheard of in the previous uh, hacks, right? They always came from the outside. This is actually came from inside and was embedded. It's kind of like the mRNA vaccine, you know? It's kind of- <laughs> almost, you know what, in a way, yes. It's, almost like a, its own virus. Yeah, you know what, it's, an, it's a really great analogy. I haven't thought about that. I like that. So every time we think we are ahead of a curve, then something else happens and we are like, okay, how are we going to change the behavior or change our uh, controls to meet yet this new challenge? And it's always like, they score, we score. They score, we score. And they're going to be more advanced. We're going to be more advanced. If you think about it, um, just a few numbers, okay? Uh, top of my head. Just the, the corona year, last year, the amount of ransomware attacks went up by 700%. It's a huge, huge number. Uh, I think we have about 80,000 attacks per hour on like every given day, not just ransomware, any type of uh, cyber attacks. And that's just in North America. The numbers in the, in the, in the world are, are you know, different and not always they're being reported properly, but that's what we know, okay? So this is not going away because it's an easier way of making money. Let's be real about it, okay? It's, some of it is really to make money. And some of it is obviously the government and the different types of uh, criminal activities that trying to uh, score some uh, points and get intelligence. Uh, commercial intelligence, uh, military intelligence, government intelligence, all these things that existed in certain capacity before, they're just changing medium and maybe the more available they used to be, but it's not like uh, there is something extremely different happens. They just change. Okay, they used to be more in person. Now it used to be more not in person. We used to fight in tanks. Now we can do drones, right? So, but at the end of the day, the technology today that being used by hackers, we have that technology. 
right? We know what this technology is. So it's all about raising the awareness, understanding that nothing can be trusted, literally nothing, being super paranoid about everything that happens around, not to trust uh, somebody who is uh, giving you inheritance of $5 million from Nigeria, right? <laughs> what, my, wait a second. He said he's my friend. <laughs> yeah, did you just send him, uh, uh, you know. Just ask for uh, some numbers, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for uh, you know. I thought it was a fair trade. Yeah, the totally fair trade. 30% of 5 million, that's, that's a nice uh, payday. So we just really living in a little bit scarier world than we used to. And we it's just new reality that uh, human beings are super adaptive creatures, right? We adapt to everything and anything. Corona changed our way of living from, I don't know how wide was the angle of change, right? But it's really changed dramatically. And look at us, right? We, we evolved and we thrived in a way. Uh, and I see it with my kids, right? They used to hate Zoom and now everything that happens is virtual, right? They do WhatsApp, Zoom, video conferences, group conferences. I know it doesn't replace something that we used to have, but that's how the world evolves. So I would just look at this as a general evolution of technology, of the way of living, of everything available. Everything is 24 seven, everything is there. And also everything is publicized more. One of the things that I learned about, it doesn't necessarily mean that we didn't have that many ransomware attacks last year or two years ago, but now we talk about it more. So how much of that, it was really there beforehand and how much actually was the add-on because uh, they just have more opportunities to do so. So that's where we're gonna go. It's always gonna be one step ahead, then we're gonna catch up. Then one step ahead, we're gonna catch up. It's always, uh, like a, a chess game and it's never gonna end because again, there's money in this game, there's power in this game, there's intelligence in this game that you gain. So you can tell those bad people just to go away because I have better software that can protect me. You think the reward outweighs the risk in terms of we're marching ever more towards dependence and interconnectivity. And again, just the example with the auto, automotive industry, we're going to have autonomous cars in a number of years, you know, really fully operational, probably. That's another thing that can now be hacked, so to speak. And even now, probably there's a lot of computer components to cars. So like we're moving that direction. I guess you'll, you'll have, you know, survivalists who will kind of stay off the grid and never want to opt into that uh, whole structure because of these concerns. But it sounds like you believe that there's enough that we can do to protect these infrastructures that we don't have to worry and we can continue, we have to worry, but we don't, we can continue marching forward with our increasing reliance on networks and interconnectivity. There's a book called Victorian Internet. It was written about invention of telegraph and how it changed the way people live their lives before and after. I'm talking about affairs, I'm talking about scams, I'm talking about all these different things that were done using the Telegram. It's a fascinating book. I, I really suggest you read that. Um, printed press. Think about it this way, right? Once the Bible was printed and it was not part of the Catholic, Catholic Church, all of a sudden you can that actually led to the, the Reformation and right, the whole, yeah. Think about that change, how that changed. Uh, Industrial Revolution, first machine that was invented, right, sent 
many, many, many people home. And we said, well, there's going to be nobody to work because the factories will be fully automated. And we yet have that, right? You, you think about the automotive industry, which one of the most automated industries in the world, I think, maybe drug industry. And yet you have people adapt, people change, people stay current, right? Whoever stayed current, whoever stayed updated the skills, they thrived, whoever was stale and didn't adapt to the new world, did not thrive and did not survive. They may be made on the basic level, but nothing beyond that. So it's not about the risks and the outweight or whatever it is, because it's happening whether we want it or don't. It's not us to decide. The world is going in that direction, okay? Because we uncovered yet another thing and yet another thing and yet another thing and, and it's gonna go like with this vaccine. This vaccine opens up whole new world of vaccination, including those crazy diseases like cancer. Cancer, that, I saw that recently, yeah. Yeah, so, but we don't know what the long-term of that vaccine is gonna be. Maybe I'm gonna grow a tail in 10 years from now, right? A flat <laughs> one I would prefer. What I'm saying is the key to the game, and that's my advice to all the listeners, keep current, never ever stop looking around, learning, understanding where it's going and what do you have to do? What do you have to read, uh, educate, talk to, network to make sure that you are moving along with the progress or whatever you call it, evolution or whatever you want to call it. And then you can thrive as opposed to survive. Because surviving is boring, is sad, is not fun, okay? Thriving is risky, but you can actually gain so much, right? It's worth the gain, in my opinion, and worth the risk. Beautiful. Oh, and just in closing, speaking of thriving and evolving and changing, is there anything that you see that's kind of a, a dream of yours still or a rock unturned or something that you want to still develop within yourself. You obviously you're a pianist already and a programmer and a security expert and also a mother and wife and contributor to the broader Jewish society. What chapters are still unwritten for you? I would say to make sure that, and it's maybe a big word. Yeah. But I, I'm trying to make it uh, very concrete to be able to teach the next generation, my children and whoever is related to that, right? The next generation to be a little bit more prepared to this new evolving world than I was when I started. I don't think the world have changed. Maybe it's a little bit speed up, right? But when I started, I had a lot of roadblocks. I had a lot of challenges because I was not maybe prepared to the point that certain things were just by the way and a skill. So I'm really on a daily basis thinking about what is the skill set? What is the capabilities that I need to teach my children and many others and, and adults or young adults? And that's what pretty much what I'm choosing for the next 10 years to do, the mentoring, the, the helping, the understanding and advising how to get to that golden skill set that allows you as a human being to be a contributing member of society and thrive in that super fast, super ever-changing world and not to lose 
kind of what what you are as a person, right? I know it's like it's big words, right? But well, do do you have any concrete policy prescriptions? Anything that you, what, what are you doing in your own life? You know, it sounds like you're volunteering, leading seminars, advising people. What are you doing to make that happen? I see myself as a door opener. Okay, I can show you the way. I can explain you where to look for. I can show you some of the things or give some of the advices based upon my experience, based upon my knowledge. And that's, I think, where my role ends because you can bring the horse to water. You can't force them to drink. I am way beyond that trying to attempt to actually change people's behavior because that's not possible, okay? I can do that. On my advanced age, I understand the only person I can actually change is myself. But I do have a way of non-intrusive opportunity opening person for my children alongside with the people that come for help to give them enough opportunities to open their horizons so they can actually pick and choose and get as much as possible from those fruits that I give them the access to. But the decision at, at the end of the day is theirs. Like, I'll give an example. I showed my son programming through Minecraft. And there's a lot of people that are really scared of Minecraft because it's very, you know, you're kind of- Addicting. <laughs> and you never come back, right? And it's a dangerous thing to do, right? So you put limits, you put some guidelines, you also find the ways to leverage that. But I give the opportunity to be creative, to build something, to learn something, to communicate with other people maybe in certain controlled ways. So I put guard rails, obviously, but I give the opportunities, okay? I create them all the time, all the time, opportunity, 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 opportunity. So eventually the skill set is being built up for the young minds. And I believe for the young adults, as well as, you know, mature people, it's really all about maybe kind of showing the different perspective and the person's like, have this aha moment, okay? That I think is what I see myself right now in the next like five, 10 years, because I really attempted to do something more than that. And I failed miserably because uh, I felt that I really, really, if I do it so hard and I really sit on top of somebody, I can actually make them to do something. Mm -mm -mm. That doesn't work. Fascinating. That's a great metaphor for me as well, because in, in my main work, besides this podcast, my major vocation, so to speak, is in Jewish education and outreach. And I work with students from all different backgrounds. And it's exactly the same thing. You know, you can't force people to do anything, but you can open doors and hope that, you know, the right people choose to walk through those doors at the right time. So I, I very much resonate with that approach, that perspective. And God willing, uh, I think hopefully we should both have great success opening doors and seeing a lot of people walk through them in the years to come. Uh, Ola Sergachev, thank you so much for joining us. Amen for what you just said. I totally like that. And thank you so much for giving the opportunity to be here. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. 
please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.